1412, there was a man by the name of John Huss, and he preached against the Catholic Church. He spoke out against indulgences. He said that the Bible was the sole authoritative text. He said that the Pope was not the head of the church and that Jesus Christ is, and that all Christians are members of God's church. He was really frustrated with the false doctrines that were being presented, but ultimately he was most frustrated by the conduct of those who were teaching, those who were leading in the churches around him. He saw so much corruption in politics and sin in the leadership of the Catholic Church. And because he preached such things, he was summoned to trial before the Council of Constance. This was an ecumenical trial that believed they had the power given to them by God to do whatever they willed. They stood in place of God. And so Huss and his friends knew that this was going to be a trap as he was preaching against them. He knew what this meant, but he trusted the Lord. He went to Constance and he was immediately placed in jail. He wanted the opportunity to proclaim truth of the gospel even there, so he went. But he was placed in jail, and um, soon after, he was walked by his pile of books and writings that he had made, stating things against the heresies of the Catholic Church, and he was placed on a stake and burned. You see, truth matters. This man, John Huss, knew as such The truth of the church matters as such, and he was willing to die for it. This is truths that are worth dying for because they impact the gospel message. The health of the church impacts the way the gospel is presented to the world. And so in this book, 1 Timothy, we have seen that the church itself does not have a nebulous definition It's not hazy. God has a structure and a plan for local churches. And this book has given us several ways to understand the faithfulness of church and what that means, what it looks like. Faithful churches should look like churches that are faithful to the gospel, churches that are faithful to doctrine and to corporate prayer. And most recently, we heard about those that are faithful to leaders who have these characteristics that are faithful in and of themselves. We have leaders that stood with character in significant ways that represented godliness to those around them. And so we're going to pick up this evening by looking at another area as Paul is re-emphasizing across the whole book the main theme he's trying to get get again to us. What is the conduct of faithfulness that you will live in for the church, not just for the leaders? How should the church conduct itself also? The reality is, heresy was everywhere around this church in Ephesus. You have this hub in Asia Minor and people are passing through. There was a massive temple to Artemis that was known in the ancient world and still today as a significant landmark. This goddess who was of just promiscuity and there was so much sin that was happening around it, even in the worship of this deity. And so the church was falling away into poor conduct and thus rejecting truth that they claim to believe as God's people. So to be a church of truth, you must know truth and respond to it and flee from lies that combat truth. And in order for us today to be a truth, to be a church that stands as a pillar of truth, we must exalt truth and expose lies. And so in this passage, we're going to see three different ways that we can live in the truth of God. 
three ways to live in the truth of God as his church. And truth is going to be a major theme of this section of the book. So let's look, begin by looking carefully at the first way to live in the truth of God as his church. And we see that that is to live as a church of truth. Live as a church of truth. This is going to be verses 14 through 15. And he will explain what this means exactly. But I want to show you the emphasis of truth as he's using this in his vocabulary across the passage. So look at these words that are relating to truth. In verse 15, he says the church is a pillar and support of truth. In verse 16 of chapter 3, he says he who is revealed is vindicated. He's found true or found innocent. We see in chapter 4 verse 3 that food is to be shared by those who believe and know the truth. And then we also have words that are in the same grouping as they are contrasting against this truth. So the opposition to truth appears through deceitful spirits in verse 1 of chapter 4, in hypocrisy and liars in verse 2 of chapter 4. The reality is truth is critical for faithfulness. Truth is critical for faithfulness. And so Paul begins this new section and emphasis with a brief pause to rehearse again why he is writing these words. He stated this briefly in chapter 1 as well, and here he's providing again why this letter is being written. And these are great things to underline in your Bibles, to know the purpose and the, the occasion of the letter, that you could keep that in mind as you're reading throughout. And so he states that in writing this letter, he is hoping to be present. This is how he begins this section. He's hoping to be present with these people. This is because he sees the value of doing ministry in person. There's only so much he can do in writing a letter. There's only so much that can be accomplished through passing notes on. The greatest form of discipleship demands presence. There's only so much Paul can do from afar. And so he sends Timothy and, and tells him to remain in Ephesus, having someone present there. And then in verse 15, we get another window into why Paul writes this letter. Look with me there. It says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. So that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. This is a book that's teaching us how faithfulness looks and manifests into conduct as the church. It's pretty straightforward. It's saying there's a right way to act, a right way to live, a right way to behave as believers. And he wants to make sure that they are doing just that. But a great question is, why is this coming up now? We're in the middle of the book. We just talked about elders and deacons. So what, what does this have to do with anything that we're addressing now? How conduct matters in character is directly related to what we just talked about in the conduct and character of elders and deacons. How they conduct themselves in their families and among outsiders and among the church. And now he's zooming out to dress the whole church and say, this isn't just about leaders. This conduct and faithful living matters for all of the people of God. No one gets out of this. You don't get a pass because you're not pursuing being an elder or a deacon. You see, the conduct of the whole church matters. And discipleship is a part of this as we're building up each other and even trying to build up the weakest links that together we would stand as this pillar of truth. And look also in this verse, it is specific about the conduct. It says that it has a location. This is specifically about conduct in the household of God. This is how we act as the church, not just as random people, but as the people of God, especially in how we interact with each other. 
Now, I do need to prove something to you. You shouldn't just take my word because I'm standing up here with a podium. You should be testing what I say against what you're seeing here. In this first verse of verse 14 tonight, it says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. So in the Greek, that's singular. And we know this letter has been written to Timothy. So how can I say up here that this is about the church and not just about what Timothy should be doing? And those are valid observations, but context is always the king. And it's important to see that conduct is important in how it displays truth. And verse 14 reveals that the church will be this pillar of truth. It's not just Timothy or the leaders. Also, it says how one ought to conduct himself, not how you ought to conduct yourself, speaking directly to Timothy. So there's at least the implication that this is for others and how it, they will see his example in 1 Timothy 4.12, it may not use the verb form of this, but it takes the noun and says, Timothy, you need to set an example in your conduct, pointing others to this example as well. So this is for the whole church. And we see that that plays out. So let's look also at verse 15 near the end of this. It says a few things about the church specifically, which is interesting to me. It says this is in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. Why did he add this? Why is there this extra description about truth? If every word in this book is inspired and important, then we should care about even these little prepositions. You see those sitting there. He chooses these specifically to reveal some of the heart behind why he writes. Why is conduct so important? Why does this matter? It, it reveals this. So the first reason I see this is looking at living God. And, and what does this mean? So your conduct is going to be done in a church of the living God. This isn't the dead God of Artemis, this idol, this bronze statue that is in this town. This is an active living God who does not tolerate his name being misrepresented. And he is, yes, giving grace to the humble, but he is opposed to the proud. And those who stand in living out conduct that is contrary to him, he is going to judge. And so these people need to be aware of the reality that their God is alive and he is not permitting these things. Secondly, Paul says that this pillar of truth is what the church is. It's a support of truth. And these are basically synonyms. And and I think also to Artemis, I think he's drawing us to this comparison several times throughout this passage. I mean, this is a massive temple known for its significant columns and pillars. And so is the church going to stand as a testimony for the gospel of Jesus by doing one thing and saying the exact same thing? Or is it going to be living out hypocrisy by saying something and living something completely different? This is how we support truth and people will know it in the world by the conduct that we have. And it's, it's not that this is the only support of truth. It's not the support of truth in the sense that we might think that looking at it in the English. There's no definite article in the Greek. It is a support. God's not going to let the, this depend upon you. You're not that powerful to mess up his truth. But we should feel the weight of our conduct modeling the truth of a living God. Would the church in Ephesus be seen as a pillar of truth in their conduct when the pillars of Artemis support the house of lies around the corner? I think that's what Paul is saying. I can't help but think of the Mormon church down the street, the church down the street. I mean, how does our conduct hold up? Are we living out what we believe here? And, and is that taking place out into the world, even into beyond Sunday, into the week? 
Do you really behave like the people of God in all of the environments you live? Do you live differently than the rest of the world? Not to rub it into their faces, but to be a mirror that reflects Christ to them, to point them to the truth that will save them, to be ambassadors of Christ on the earth. Or is there hypocrisy in your life? Sin that is hiding behind the scenes that you don't want to touch or remove. Is your pursuit of truth just a means to boost your ego and pride? Or is it to protect people from the attacks of the enemy in your own church? A good test of this might be to look at the way you use truth. When you talk about the truths of God, is it elevating God in worship and and drawing others into that? Or is it being used to, to bludgeon others, to be truth bombs, to go drop on other people, to show that you're awesome, or to write a little blip on social media because of these people that are so against everything you see and you just are attacking? Is your life marked by faithful, gentle, but firm discipleship of others toward truth in the real world, helping them see the dangers of their sin? Discipleship demands presence, and we must be doing this. If you're middle schoolers or high schoolers or younger, are you seeking to find those who are older to invest into you? If you're someone who's older, are you seeking those younger to invest into and older to invest into you? Discipleship is a massive part of the church and the health of the church in protecting truth. This should be something significant that we are seeking out. I wish it was weird to not have a mentor. That's the type of of culture that I I would love to see develop and grow and continue to grow. May we be known in our community as Summit Woods, that church that disciples people to truth, the church that doesn't compromise truth because it loves people. In order to be a church that stands as a pillar of truth, we must exalt truth and expose lies. All right, so let's look at a second way to live in the truth of God as his church. And that is to live out the confession of truth. Live out the confession of truth. And I see this in verse 16 of chapter 3. And it begins with this. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. This word in the Greek for common confession, it's only used here in all of the Greek New Testament. It doesn't show up anywhere else in scripture, but we clearly know what it means because of other texts that are ancient Greek. And so we see that believers confess this mystery of godliness as great and undeniable. It's a common confession. It's something we agree upon. It's undeniable and it is great and marvelous. The content of this mystery will then be unfolded in the rest of the verse. And simply put, this is the mystery of the work of Christ, the gospel, the good news for sinners. And I think it's truly interesting. One of, one of the commentators that I was reading noted that the chant of the Ephesians from the book of Acts, when Paul goes in on his, one of his journeys and he's, he's moving and sharing the gospel, and there's this big you know, ruckus that's stirred up because the silversmiths are losing money. Their idols are not being built because people are getting saved and they're not buying idols anymore. And a, a crowd grows and begins chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this phrase is so similar to what we read here. Great is the mystery of godliness. Again, we see this comparison being drawn. Don't go towards this, this heresy, this this false, these lies that are standing against the truth. Don't go after that, but remain faithful to truth. 
So the contrast is evident. Christ and his mystery of godliness versus Artemis and the sinful practices of those in the temple. That is the mystery of godliness that Christ provides. And so he's helping them see that there's this transition that happens from truth into conduct. And so that's going to happen throughout this hymn as well. He's going to show these truths that exist and they lead into conduct and how that lives out. And that gets right to the heart of the matter. And this is generally accepted to be a section of him that he's probably quoting. It's, it's pulled from something that the Ephesians likely knew that Timothy would have been familiar with. Um, it's, it's possible that he's just a section of that and he's adding to it. And it's beautiful and it's, I mean, literarily there's so much packed into it and it's super debated, which is really intriguing to me. I I think it's just a sign of a well-written poem, honestly, as a poet who enjoys that. But there's parallelism and, and potential things going on. And I say all of that. Because how we think about parallelism and and the logical flow and the chronological flow and whatever these might be impact how we interpret this and and what it, it means for us as we read it. Why is it here? Why did Paul pull this in? And so... Um, we need to understand that. And, and I favor a, a two halves view so that there's two halves of this thing specifically. It's not that there's groupings of other things, but specifically the first three and the second three go together and kind of contrast and compare it with each other. And I say that um, for a couple of reasons. One, logically lines four and five proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world are the most linked together. And so it would be really weird if they were grouped in twos and then they got separated. That would be strange. Um, Also, context is the main influence for me. And when we're in situations like this, we should say, what was the author, Paul, trying to communicate by using this? Why was he putting this here? Not what do I think it means? And so in light of that, we see that there is an emphasis of living out in our conduct how you ought to live from earlier in the verse preceding this. And that leads us to see how these truths of the first half then lead to actions in the second half. So thus the poem is a link back to how we should live and a pull forward to combat false teaching that will come after. It's a hinge of our passage into chapter 4. And so with that in mind, I, I, I take this to be that it's talking about in the first line, the incarnation. In the second line, talking about the vindication of the spirit. This, this could be Jesus' baptism, but it's more likely his resurrection. He's, he's vindicated as the son of God, as who he said he was because he rose from the dead. And angels see him in his victorious ascent to the right hand of the father. And then this matches well with the three results that follow in lines four through six of this. They were proclaimed, believed, and then in the ascension, glorified. So that is who Christ is, what he has done, and then a response to those things that affect how we live. So Christ is the means that this mystery of godliness is made possible in our own conduct. Christ is the means by which sanctification can happen. We proclaim that to others that they might believe and put their faith in him. That one day we will worship the ascended king of glory together. That is truth in action. In the same way that these truths are confessed in this hymn and they lead to action, we too should be led to action. And I think specifically to even these actions stated in this confession. How how selfish is it when we do not proclaim the gospel 
How cruel is it when we keep it to ourselves? How easily we forget the the desperation of the lost world that is just in sin and going further into sin and it is destroying them. I mean, we must bring them the truth. We must proclaim the gospel to them so that some will believe. How can we not share the greatest truth we have with them if we truly love them? I mean, think, think of it this way. Imagine if you knew the cure to cancer. That would be a marvelous reality. But if you kept that to yourself and never shared it, it would be terrible. It'd be so awful. And how much greater is the mystery of the gospel of godliness that saves people from, from eternity in hell? And we know this and we should be sharing this with every opportunity we have with those that are lost. I mean, we, we cannot be stuck just worshiping the truth instead of living it out in our lives. So do we study the Bible as if this is true? As if our understanding of scripture, our awareness of this confession of truth might impact our gospel proclamation later on in our day or in our week as we come across to others that do not know him. I think the, the way we study scripture is, is truly impacting those around us. It impacts the church. It impacts your evangelism. It impacts your marriage and your parenting. Studying the scriptures is one of the most selfless things you could ever do. And I think we buy into this lie that it just impacts me so I can put it aside for this moment or this time or this season or whatever it is. And that temptation just weaves its way in. But no, it impacts everyone around us. Paul really seems to think that your faithfulness to the gospel will impact the way the church is and how you think about it as a whole. I mean, we can think of the context of this book about faithful churches. What do they look like? Does it really matter about those little details about elders and deacons and who they are and all these pieces of character really and, and how we pray in the congregation? I mean, as long as the gospel's right, like that's all that really matters, right? But man, that, I, I see that sneaking into my own heart at times and, and it's truly a sneaky thing because we want so badly to see God do big things and, and it's tempting to cut these corners to get there. And while we can be eager for action, we should not settle for something less than God's truth. I mean, it's so challenging to me when I hear of small churches that are out in the middle of nowhere and they need a pastor now. And so they just settle for some guy who walks in and, and they, they are not holding him up to the standard that the scriptures are saying, even in this book. Or it burdens my mind when I hear of people prioritizing numbers about baptisms and conversions. And so they begin cutting corners to assume salvation in certain ways because they just want to see that number grow. But there might be no fruit and these people end up confused and walking away from Christ. And how hard is it to evangelize people who already think they're saved when they're not? God's church must protect truth. And we are his church. This local body is a church of God. His gospel, his word, we all must come together in Lee Summit, Missouri to do the same and not stray or shrink, or shrink away in fear. And I, I got to say, I think we're doing a good job of that. I, I wouldn't be able to sit up here and, and look at our church and say, we're not doing okay in that way. But may we not grow callous to that just because we're doing okay in certain things. We cannot let our guard down and let the enemy sneak in a back door. If anything, this is the time to pray against the attacks that may be made upon the truths that we believe. Don't relax your guard because of the blessings that you have. May these truths impact the way you live in your conduct 
as Paul is striving to tell Timothy to tell this church. May your conduct clearly display the truths that you cling to. What a waste it would be to know much and live very little of it. May this not be said of you or me. In order to be a church that stands as a pillar of truth, we must exalt truth and expose lies. All right, let's look at the third way to live in the truth of God as his church. And that is to live unlike the competitors of truth. Live unlike the competitors of truth. And I find this in chapter four, verses one through five. And uh, this last section of our passage, it's all one sentence in the Greek, which is why I have it all as one point here. And it's about false teaching. It's about those who have fallen away and these, these false teachers that are coming up in this community. And the section transitions from those deacons and elders who have faith in Christ to then foil it against the false teachers through that hinge of the hymn that is in between. We're at this point, and I know this because of the contrasting conjunction that starts off this section. It starts with the word but. And in the Greek, that is also there. This contrasts back to this mystery of godliness that exists, that we've just unfolded in this beautiful hymn. And that's why character matters in leaders. The, the gospel is at stake. That's why character matters in each of us as the church. The gospel is at stake. The conduct of God's people impacts the testimony of God's people. It, it plays out into our lives. And it's quite possible that Paul predicted this earlier, uh, either as a prophecy or, or otherwise, and just his awareness of where the church was heading. But in Acts 20, through, in verses 28 through 31, uh, it says that the Spirit says in later times, some will fall away. So there was an awareness that this would happen with this church. So what is this group of opposition promoting? Well, it seems like there's a few different things that are going on here. And it is a diverse community. So it's ultimately this form of religious synchronism where it's pulling in different parts of the culture around it and the religions around it. And they're appealing to the spiritual world for, for doctrine. I mean, look at verse 1 here. It says they're paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In Acts 19, when, again, Paul was in Ephesus, we, we learned that there was a massive community of, of magicians and sorcerers, and some of them get saved, and they, they pile up these books of sorcery to burn them, and it costs 50,000 days wages. I mean, this is a significant part of the community, is demonic activity. It's a part of this religious appeal, and so we see that that is seeping in. But also the opposition seems to be teaching a substantial form of asceticism, meaning they're adding extra rules to um, avoid indulging into certain things that are fine to do. And there's two specifically that are mentioned. We see marriage and certain foods. So apparently these people were avoiding marriage and being taught to do so. And, And this might seem strange. One scholar suggests that The reason it's not just money or alcohol or something that we might expect people to avoid because of something that could be evil with it, but there's marriage and food might be specifically due to a teaching that's going on of living as though some future reality of heaven has already happened on earth. We're trying to bring it now or it has already happened, Uh, a realized eschatology. And so they're they're living as though Genesis 1 and, and the Garden of Eden 
that they're living as vegetarians. And when Jesus taught about heaven and said that there would be no marriage, they're applying this potentially. This, this might be a reason, and it's fun to speculate. But either way, we should see that th- these false teachings exist because of people of poor character, which has already been talked about in the leaders. That's why the emphasis was there. If you just made a list from the pastoral epistles, you have hypocrites, liars, insincere, lacking love, corruptive motives for reputation, money, pleasure. They don't submit to authority, especially not Paul and Timothy. They're foolish, they're unholy, they're ungodly, worthless for any good work, deny God in their deeds, they're perverted. I mean, why is Paul talking about the quality and conduct of leaders and the people of the church? I mean, this is why. It's at this point that I also find it intriguing to glance back at the hymn and contrast what these false teachers are doing with Christ. Look back briefly at that hymn. You, you see that the hymn emphasizes the work of Christ, not the work of heretics and demons. That Christ is the real historical one in the flesh, while these people are teaching myths and endless genealogies mentioned in chapter 1. And Christ is vindicated by the Spirit of God, and they deny God and are known as liars and frauds. Christ was seen by angels, whereas these are workers associated with demons. I mean, clearly Paul has chosen this specifically, intentionally, to tie it all together. But what's wild is the people of this church bought the lie. They actually fell into something as substantial as leading themselves with demon truths. And the church is falling into this stuff. At at best, they're so weak in their knowledge of truth that they don't know any better. And at worst, they know the truth and are choosing to reject it. In chapter 1, verse 19, we see that keeping faith with a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So there's people that have chosen this specifically. They have marked themselves, as it says here, the illustration of a branding iron. On their very conscience, they have seared themselves numb and marked themselves with and identified themselves with this brand of demons. But Paul shuts this down and says that everything created by God is good. And by this, he means both marriage and food in this context. And that this abstaining from them is absurd. This is not what the truth of scripture says. The new covenant came with this ability that you can eat bacon if you so choose to do so. And it's a good thing. You don't need to force someone to settle for vegetables. And and prayer confirms the goodness of food. This is the second point he makes here at the end of this passage. You see this God is good and this prayer thing being woven together near the end. This prayer of gratitude is not saying that there's some magic prayer that makes food all of a sudden good and turns it into broccoli. It's merely saying that these prayers of gratitude affirm the goodness of the food that God has provided. I think a modern day similarity to this false teaching is that of the Seventh-day Adventists who submit to these extra biblical texts and other prophets and they do not eat all of these foods because of these laws that they're adding additionally and we reject this as false and hold to truth. But what about the sneakier things, the lies, the, the ways that we are being tempted to believe and live in a hypocrisy in our own hearts and sear our own consciences? In one moment, one might say that the health and wealth gospel is false, which we affirm, but then get frustrated when things don't go well because shouldn't they just go well as I'm a Christian? 
In one moment, you might say that legalism is wrong and then think that you need to achieve enough in your school or in your work to just earn favor. In one moment, you might say that being angry and argumentative is sinful and then go on a rant on Facebook or in an email. I mean, do the work to know the truth that will impact how you live. Not like those who are competing against your truth, but expose the lies of hypocrisy in your own heart. Ask those closest to you to tell you what they see. This should be a constant battle. This, we must be continually pointing each other towards truth. We must continually direct each other towards the gospel that it would be protected among us and preserved in the world. In order for the church to stand as a pillar of truth, we must exalt truth and expose lies. Now, a hundred years after John Huss's death, there was a monk who discovered some of his writings and began reading them ravenously. And a fire grew in him to stand up for truth and to stand up for scripture and for what the church was as Christ as its true head. And he went on to influence the world with the Reformation. And that monk was named Martin Luther. The reality is, Truth matters, and, and John Huss and Martin Luther and now even us as we stand on the backs of these people, it, it matters how we live truth that God would do massive things to impact the world through our testimony. May we be a church that lives as a church of truth, lives out the confession of truth, and lives unlike the competitors of truth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that you have given us a means to know you and to know truth. That you are a God who is true, who does not speak false things, who does not lie to us or deceive us or have any trickery. And Lord, I pray that as we go out into this week, that we would take the truths of scripture that we know and that we have learned, that we would continue to develop this this storehouse of truth so that we would live it, so that people would know that we are different, that we serve a God who is good, that we might lead others toward him, that we'd proclaim the gospel. Would you kill hypocrisy in our lives? Would you reveal it among us? Would you give us the humility to go before others and to ask for ways that we might need to grow? I pray that you would move mightily, that your word, as you have promised, would not return void this evening and that you would be glorified. It's your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue thinking on the, the truth of the word, and may we respond uh, now with our voices.